to be part of that story is really powerful for us and allows us a way to bring more people into our conversation around conviviality, which is really truly the mission of this entity. We aren't, we aren't trying to make a point about anything. We're just trying to learn something new and um, share in some community. So thank you very much for being part of that. We appreciate it. Core to our community, as I mentioned, is our brewery community and the culture here that we have been able to enjoy as Golden Knights. I'm gonna bring up Jonathan. He is an award-winning beer maker from Cannonball Creek. All right, we'll try and find the sweet spot here. All right, hi guys. Uh, my name's Jonathan, like she mentioned, I am one, I am one half of the brewing team at Cannonball. So there's many people that make that place run, but there's two of us in the back and we will be hitting seven years in January. So I should probably brew an anniversary beer, I just realized. Um, and then yeah, tonight we are drinking, we'll start with solid gold. Solid gold's a Belgian golden ale. Um, Belgian golden ales are a really good example of a miscorrelation that people have between fruity and sweet because Belgian ales are fruity but they're not sweet. So you get all kinds of slight banana and some lemon and other things that are produced by the yeast but the finish is still very dry which is also what makes those beers finish up in the mid sevens uh, as far as alcohol content goes. And then speaking of alcohol content, our IPAs usually, most IPAs finish six and a half to seven and a half percent. But when you talk about session beers, you try to make the same base style, but get it down to a much more drinkable ABV. It's, it's an old English term session, meaning a drinking session. You can have several and still get home. So with an IPA, you're trying to get that below 5%. So, or with any session beer, really, you're trying to get it below five. So with our session IPA, we got it down to four six, which was the smallest beer to this day that we've ever made. So we were trying to think of something small to name it after and Trump hands IPA was born. And so, still the smallest IPA that we've ever, smallest beer that we've ever made. Um, and normal IPA stuff, all kinds of citrus and tropics and a little bit of hot bitterness, but balance is the goal there as far as drinkability goes. And that's it. Hi folks, I'm Marith Reheis, retired geologist with the U.S. Geological Survey, and I'm here tonight to introduce our speaker, Bob Reynolds. Bob is listed in his bio as being a consulting geologist, and he's an affiliate of the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. That says very, very little. <laughs> Bob is a geological polymath. He has published in sedimentology, stratigraphy, volcanology, remote sensing, and geoscience education. He has worked in many countries in Central America, South America, all over Africa, the Middle East, the Far East, <laughs> and, and um, South Asia as well. So as a result, He's worked in the cradles of our hominid ancestors and in the lands and the climates 
that they encountered as they migrated and evolved and invented. So he's now turning his attention to the perils and challenges of our time, the Anthropocene. And this is especially timely because hominids evolved during the most drastic climate changes in the last many million years, the ice ages, or we call it the Pleistocene. We were challenged to survive as we evolved during that period of time. And now we're challenged to evolve and survive again the climates and the problems that we've created with our successes and our technologies. So no further, no further ado, I'd like to introduce Bob Reynolds. Okay, thank you all for being here. Thank you, Meredith. And, uh, Wow, Whitney, wow, welcome. So, <laughs> so uh, we're delighted uh, to uh, join you here, and uh, I've got to figure out how to turn the conversation towards beer, and I hope you're all having a good session. <coughs> and uh, did you taste the banana? <laughs> Evidently, there's a banana flavor in here, which is pretty good. So... What I'd like to do this evening is I've got about 27 minutes, I think, if I can steal two, uh, to uh, give a discussion uh, ranging across the uh, span of our history. And what I'd like to do is look at the span of time uh, during which we evolved. As Meredith was sort of mentioning, there's been a tremendous range of uh, forces that have acted upon our species and our pro uh, progenitors. Uh, so the story of us, Australopithecines to the Anthropocene uh, encompasses a wide range of topics, a wide range of disciplines, of course. And the way I'm going to divide my presentation this evening is uh, basing it on three fundamental questions that I'm often asked. People ask me three questions. And the, the first two are pretty easy at some level. Uh, where do we come from is a question many people ask. Where are we going as a species is a question many people ask. And we can deal with those things. Uh, we can deal with those kinds of questions. The first question dealing with the past, where do we come from? I mean, a few years ago, it might have been mysterious. Uh, Louis Leakey, as many of you might remember, postulated that humans uh, evolved and originated in Africa. And he and his wife, uh, Mary, spent a lot of time trying to demonstrate that and prove that. And most of you will remember the wonderful support that uh, the Leakey family received from the National Geographic Society. And Lewis and Mary uh, worked in Olduvai Gorge. How many have been to Olduvai? So you can see that a dozen of you or so have been to Olduvai Gorge. And Olduvai Gorge is a place that was uh, made very famous by, the, by Lewis and his wife. Um, she did most of the work, I think, is what I heard. And uh, Lewis was a great uh, promoter. 
but effectively, they were able to demonstrate that there were ancient hominid species and early tool makers in the Rift Valley and on its environs in uh, East Africa, in Tanzania specifically for Olduvai, but that uh, evidence of our ancestry continues through, through Tanzania, up through Kenya, and into uh, Ethiopia. Uh, the fossil Lucy that many of you will know that Don Johansson found is uh, from Ethiopia. And I've had the opportunity to work in Lake Turkana, which is in Kenya for many years. And here's an image uh, from Lake Turkana. <coughs> and people often s say, well, why the, do the fossils come from East Africa? Why do the fossils come from uh, Kenya, Tanzania, Ethiopia? And it's because of the geology. Those fossils aren't there by mistake. The fossils are there because the geological framework is favorable. Not only were the environments favorable for humans or our hominid ancestors to live, but those environments were places where there was active sediment accumulation. And you need sediment accumulation to preserve fossils. So the Rift Valley is a little bit of a magic place in that it offers a beautiful environment to live in but also a high potential for preservation of the uh, fossil remains. So that's one of the principal reasons why the, a multitude of our ancestral remains are found in East Africa in the Rift Valley. And as an example, I just offer a hominid skull that was found in 1970, uh, would have been 72 uh, in Kenya. This was in the Lake Turkana Basin this is a fossil that was featured in many publications, very renowned. It it's, has its name of 1470. We all call it 1470. It was an ancestor of ours. And at the time in 1972, we had very few uh, fossil skulls. We were trying to put together a picture based on a small pa uh, package of, uh, of hominids. And to be fair, we created a, f a fairly simple uh, evolutionary tree. In the succeeding years, since the 70s, we found dozens, in fact, uh, tens, uh, probably almost a hundred additional skulls and portions of skulls. And the picture's gotten more complicated. And Stephen Jay Gould used to talk about a, a, a shrub or a hedge instead of a simple tree. So we now look back and we see that our ancestors were complicated. They collaborated. They um, uh, might have cooperated, they might have interbred in various ways, and the minuscule population of skulls and significant fossils that we have allows us really to only reconstruct a very basic framework of the species that lived in that time. Now, we have an incomplete record of their species and their speciation or evolution, but we have a much more complete understanding of the tools that they left behind. They left stone tools behind, and starting at 3.3 million years ago, they were pounding rocks together, creating very primitive stone tools, and by about 1.75 or 6 million years ago, they created hand axes and we used hand axes for a long time. They were sort of the Swiss army knife of the time. And uh, so we had hand axes for hundreds of thousands of years. But in the course of that time period, as we were evolving in Africa, 
we were developing additional skill sets. For example, not only were we making stone tools, but we were learning language. We were learning to walk upright. So our progenitors as early as in excess of three million years ago, the footprints show us we were walking upright probably even before that. Uh, language we probably had, of course very difficult to know, but we probably were talking about things, craving a drink probably. But in the time before cups or containers, it was hard to make beer. We might get to that in a minute, but in any case, um, we developed the ability to speak and the ability to communicate, the ability to walk upright. Eventually, we, we d learned how to make fire. We learned that a cooked warthog tastes better than a raw warthog, which you can all imagine. And uh, we came out of this land uh, looking something like this. This is John Gurchie, who a colleague of mine at the Denver Museum, now uh, living in New York State, uh, based on a variety of uh, fossils that have been found through time, uh, John has reconstructed a, uh, a plausible view of what we might have looked like. And he and I often talked about the threshold of uh, being able to get on the Colfax bus. And for those of you who've done the, the one line, the Colfax line, um, it's the people's bus. And, and, you know, everybody rides the Colfax bus sometimes. And at some point, somewhere back in time, in the Pleistocene, where Marath is, um, we probably would have been able, if you'd combed our hair a little bit, and, and if you had a student ID or something, you could have gotten on the Colfax bus. So, so that's the, and, I'm, and that would have been, you know, a couple million years ago. So, so we've had, you know, the skill sets, the capacity that we have today for a long, long, long time. And uh, what have we done with that? What have we done with those skills? Yeah, we've made war. What else have we done? We've made babies. Oku de babies have been made. So this is a quick sketch of showing the population of the world through historic times going back from, uh, you know, about, I don't know, it's 5,000 years ago, 7,000 years ago, but point to be made is that uh, our population has dramatically risen in recent times. And I hope it's a hard to show a slide from a long distance and I don't like to use PowerPoints, but this PowerPoint is useful because it shows the rather dramatic increase in human population associated with uh, the skills and advantages that we have prominently because of our capacity to, pa to pass on information to our progeny. So our capacity to pass on information to our progeny which means to our children, has allowed us to take information that we gather, whether it's how to make a better tool, whether it's how to start farming, whether it's how to learn how to read or write, and we have passed that on to our progeny.
as has every person in this room. There's no one in this room that hasn't taken time with a young person to teach them something. And I'm sure that many of you have spent many, many, many hours teaching young people, whether it's your children, your grandchildren, your students. And so that is an amazing human capacity, one that we have excelled at, one that where we arguably are better than most of our compadre species on the planet and we have the ability to share and pass on information. What I'd like to suggest that is in the last 10,000 years, our ability to share information has been constantly increasing. We learned how to grow crops, agriculture. Remember, we were hunters and gatherers and the guys would go out and hunt something, maybe they'd find it, maybe they wouldn't. Who did the gathering? Yeah, the ladies. So it was the ladies who figured out that if you planted the seed, something might grow. And we invented agriculture again and again. We invented it in the, in the Egyptian Valley. We invented it in the Indus. We invented it in China. We probably invented it in multiple other places, Mesopotamia, et cetera. So agriculture and the domestication of plants and eventually the domestication of animals was a big harbinger for growth. But then the next, one of the next big things that we did was we invented cities. And Edward Glazer has said that cities are mankind's greatest invention. I'll dispute that in a few minutes, but in any case, cities are a pretty big deal because once you've got cities, you've got spare time. Spare time. And once you've got spare time, you brew beer. <laughs> it's, it's just, you see it around the world. As soon as there's spare time and the development of some kind of a bucket, people are brewing beer. And it comes in many different formats and many different tastes. Some taste like bananas. You know, some taste like small hands. But people fermented stuff for thousands and thousands of years. Uh, if we come into the more recent times, uh, these same patterns of progression led us to look for increasing energy, increasing capacity to do things. And somewhere in there, we learned that you could burn coal, combust carbon. And with the combustion of carbon and the availability of spare time, you develop the Industrial Revolution. And the Industrial Revolution happened in many times in many different places, but it was associated with recognizing that human muscle power could be greatly enhanced and expanded by the use of combustion, particularly of coal in the early days, and then eventually the combustion of hydrocarbons. And we combusted hydrocarbons pretty vigorously, starting you know, back in the 1700s or somewhere when, I mean, coal was used for heating, peat was used for heating before that, going much further back in time, I'm sure. And so we've been altering the uh, character of the earth because we've been taking ancient carbon and putting it into the atmosphere. And we need to emphasize the fact that the combustion of hydrocarbons involves taking ancient carbon, which means Paleocene, Eocene, or even Cretaceous or older coal or carbon, and burning it. And you're actually taking the carbon out of the ground, out of the geological environment, and you're putting it into the existing ecosystems. 
And in doing so, this growing population and their increasing capacity uh, conducted essentially a geophysical experiment on the face of the globe. And I'm showing you today right here the curve that we call the Keeling Curve. It's named after Dave Keeling, Charles D. Keeling, who was a scientist who worked at Scripps and other places. And he started gathering the data back in the 19, um, I think in the 60s. This diagram only goes to the 80s. But uh, this fellow was very compulsive about looking at carbon dioxide in the uh, atmosphere. And he measured the carbon dioxide at the top of Mauna Loa, or Mauna Kea, Loa, in Hawaii. And he chose that spot because it was a very high, it was 14,000 plus feet out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and he felt that it would be uninfluenced by nearby civilization or combustion. And the data originally, uh, it's a wonderful story, you can all look it up. The data originally was sort of cryptic, but he started to see these cycles through the course of a year, and then he started to notice early on that there was a gradual increase in the con content of carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere. And he recognized at that time that this was probably due to the hand of man. And I often tell students that that's the most famous curve on Earth. So you're looking at the most famous curve on Earth which, you know, you might have thought it was the Venice de Milo, or you might have thought it was the whatever the armless woman is, or whatever, but this is the big deal. And uh, young people today are living with this curve. And it shows the increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere of the planet. And the increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere of the planet has resulted in a greenhouse effect. Even though these amounts are modest in terms of parts per million and in terms of percentage of the content of the atmosphere. But there's 420 odd parts per million CO2 in my hands here. And the net effect is that the molecules of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere uh, serve to keep the earth warm. Energy that comes into the earth is trying to bounce out, but it hits the atoms of carbon dioxide. They are of the right dimension that the outgoing radiation excites them. An excited molecule is a warmed molecule. The atmosphere is warming. The earth is warming. The heat is actually not in the atmosphere. The heat is in the water. 90 plus percent of global temperature increase is actually in the ocean water. It's not in the air. It's not in the atmosphere. The things that we measure and think are interesting are trivial compared to what's going on on a planetary scale. And so we have changed the Earth. We've changed the character of the planet. And we all live on a planet that was different than the planet that we were born on. The planet today is different than the planet that we were born on. The chemistry of the ocean is changing. The oceans are getting more acidic. The character of the atmosphere, of course, is changing. It's increasing uh, uh, carbon dioxide and methane. And so we're in a challenging time. And it's a strange time. It's a time where people deny science. People think the problems are too big that they can't deal with them. People think that it's somebody else's problem. 
people think that it's not going to happen in their lifetime. But these challenges are happening in our lifetime. They're happening in your lifetime. They're happening right now. And they range across from changing ecosystems to changing precipitation patterns to changing agriculture patterns to droughts. The dry areas get drier. The wet areas get wetter. But the dry areas, think of Darfur, think of Somalia, think of Yemen, think of Syria. All of those places are places that are suffering because of dry conditions. What are the people doing? They're looking for work. The cows have died. The fish have been taken away. In the case of Somalia, foreign nations came in and were fishing. What recourse does a Somali young person have? Yeah, what'd they do? Piracy. Those Somalis weren't pirates because they wanted to crush the world. They were pirates because they were entrepreneurs and there was something out there at sea that they could harvest. So these are a, ch a challenging thing and I think that young people today are deeply concerned. Talk to children. Talk to college students. They're asking, you know, what career can I pursue? Where are my opportunities? What jobs will I have? What's happening? People are migrating. 60 plus million people are displaced, throwing themselves in the Mediterranean. You can't build walls. Walls are a waste of resource. It's a stupid thing. But w once you have a cup of beer, you might be able to find a glimmer of hope <laughs> in this situation. And um, I find hope. A guy named Charles Mann wrote a book called The Wizard and the Prophet. It just came out a couple years ago. They talk about stewardship versus dominion. The religions of the world have two kinds. There's one that wants to steward and herd the sheep, and there's another one that wants to dominate the land and procreate. And you can read the writings of many religions and you'll discern those topics. The Pope has looked at this, and you might remember his, uh, in, in, uh, his encyclical of uh, a couple, three years ago. I call him the Pope of Hope because he, he realized, he gets it. I mean, and there's a big science cadre hiding somewhere in the Vatican. There's science advisors in the Vatican. And they got to the Pope, and so he wrote this thing a few years ago about uh, cherishing our home. And uh, he's looked at that very carefully, and he sees hope. He sees that we can try to clean up the situation. But I see hope as well. And uh, here, here is hope. So I know that's a far distant view for some of you, but you might recognize possibly the two most famous women in the world today. 
And someone will say that Hillary is more famous, or someone will say that that um, Angela Merkel is more famous, Malala. But I hope you recognize Greta and Jane. So Greta and Jane are changing the world. And Greta, of course, is a 16-year-old from Sweden. Jane is now a doyenne. I'm not sure her vintage, but that's, of course, Jane Goodall. And uh, these two people are changing the world right now. And they're not changing it completely in isolation. They're changing it in the context of a world that has tremendous new tools, not only the tools that I've talked about earlier, uh, but we've invented new tools, specifically, for example, the internet. And so in our lifetime, the internet was invented, for most of you. And after the internet was invented, um, we were able to share secrets about how to brew beer. That's a good thing. But more importantly, we actually created the, what I think is the most fundamental invention of mankind, the most fundamental creation, uh, and that was Wikipedia. So Wikipedia is the most fundamental invention of mankind. And it achieves what Teilhard de Chardin talked about, the newosphere. He talked about global interconnectedness. We have global interconnectedness. We can see it today. And students, young people from one side of the world are able to communicate to those on the other side of the world uh, with no problem whatsoever. And so I am hopeful for the future because I think that the young people will find solutions. They'll find better ways of making energy, better ways of making beer, better ways of communicating, better ways of storing energy, and they will succeed in finding solutions. It's not going to be easy and it's not going to be cheap. It's going to, in fact, be expensive. But if you look at Germany, they're willing to shoulder the costs right now in Germany. They're denuclearizing. Nuclear power was 12% of their electricity. They're dropping that to zero. They have a program and a plan to get rid of carbon, even though they are still heavy burners of coal, both lignite and hard coal. The Germans will do it. The New Zealanders have a plan to go to net zero. In Iceland, they have excess electricity. They're making methanol with their excess electricity in Iceland. So we can see the glimmers of pathways ahead. And uh, Greta is going to show us the way, I believe. Now the talk is almost over and I'm being, I see the hook. <laughs> but there were three questions. What is the third question? Where did we come from? Where are we going? Those are two questions. What's the third question? What are, what are we doing? We're drinking beer. What, what's the third question? And these are questions that young people ask me. So I sort of compile it. So I've got three questions that I get asked. And the final question, the third question that they'll ask me is, are we alone? Because they have grown up in a culture where there's something called uh, 
help from a friend. So the kids get stuck on a question. They say, can I call for help from a friend? There's some kind of a phrase that the young people are using. That, what's it called? Phone a friend. They say, can I phone a friend? And I, when I first started hearing this, I couldn't understand what the hell they were talking about. But there, there's some kind of a quiz show or something that lets you phone a friend. So the kids are wondering if they can phone a friend. And that leads us to the last slide, you know, the third question, are we alone? And here's the last slide. So that takes us to the Drake equation. And many of you are familiar with the Drake equation put together a few years ago just to look at the probability of there being somebody out there whom we can phone to get help. So the probability of there being somebody out there that we can telephone for help. And this equation is designed to illustrate the, the probability of there being somebody at the other end of the phone when you push the button. And it's made up of a variety of ingredients. Uh, so the probability of somebody answering the phone is on, is on the left. And it's a, pr it's a function of all of these things. And I'll just quickly walk through them. So it's the rate at which stars are forming in the galaxy. So how many stars are there? That's an important thing to know. The next one is the number of planets. How many of those stars have planets? The next thing is well, how many of those planets are in a habitable area? The next thing is how many of those planets might have life on them, the probability of life? And then the question, well, what about intelligent life? Because when I call home, I want them to be able to tell me something useful. So how many of them are intelligent? And then which ones of them have civilizations that are capable of building the, the other side of this thing so that when I push the button, they answer. And then the last thing, the L on the very far right, is how long does the civilization last? So how long does the civilization last? If it's super short, they will never answer the phone. Now, I just want to, my final points to you are that this equation has changed drastically in our lifetime. The Drake equation has changed drastically not in its components, but in the size of, of the magnitude of some of those components. And specifically, I just want to mention that the number of stars with planetary systems, which is the second ingredient, we used to think was sort of small, we thought planets were sort of special. Planets are not special. Almost every star has planets. Probably most stars have planets. Maybe every star has planets. Habitable zone. Well, what do you need to habitate? The habitable zone's probably bigger than we think, and there are more planets than we thought. So the Drake equation, the number, the probability of somebody answering the phone when the kid calls for help has gone up in our lifetime, and that's a positive thing that I want to leave you with. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Bob. That was a, a thoughtful and thought-provoking talk. I really appreciate it. We're going to do two things before we take Q&A. First, before you people drift off, because I know some people will head out, I want to announce the talk for December. The speaker in December is Barb Warden, who you've heard her name mentioned many, many times. She's going to be talking, well, first I'll say she's uh, well-known within the community. She's a historian as well as the publisher of goldentoday.com. And if you follow her website, her Facebook page, or her news blogs, 
you'll know that she often shares really interesting history about Golden. And in December, she's going to be talking about the funiculars of Golden. So that's going to be great. When, when Whitney said we have no theme, this is an example, coming from Bob and then going to funiculars and, and then on to other topics. So that's the December uh, speaker. And then um, we're going to take about a five-minute break. You can get more beer, and then we'll reassemble for Q&A. Thank you very much. Check, check,
into our Q&A session. Uh, there's a microphone down front, and uh, if people have questions, they can come on down to the microphone, and Bob will call on you in turn. Okay, Bob. Okay, yeah, thank you. So, yeah, any, any questions are fair. I think the, uh, you know, this is an opportunity for a discussion amongst people who have your own perspectives, some of whom will be quite different than mine, perhaps. So I'm eager to, to hear what you might think. Yeah. Uh, I have one question. Uh, with global warming, uh, which apparently started way before the Industrial Revolution, it's uh, delayed the next glacial period, right? So what is your thinking about when we're gonna have the next glaciation? Well, that's a good question. So the question is about when is the next glacial period uh, likely to arrive? And when I was a student back in the 70s, we had a very dim understanding of the ice ages and uh, in our academic setting. The, the ice ages, however, were figured out by a, a, a Serbian mathematician, Milankovic, who looked at the orbital parameters of the Earth, and you're mostly familiar with this, but. Uh, it was uh, realizing that the ice ages had been controlled by the varying amount of solar energy arriving in the northern hemisphere gave us a sudden realization that there was, it wasn't just chaos and randomness. The ice ages were very cyclical. They started about 2.4 million years ago. And if things were on schedule, we would be heading towards the next ice age right around now because we've had 10 to 12,000 years of warm weather in the what we call the Holocene. And in the normal turn of events, we'd be cooling off and heading for an ice age in the not too distant future, geologically speaking. However, that's not happening. We've intervened and we've created a different system. So we've monkeyed with the parameters of the planet and we've cranked up the greenhouse gas to a point where we're not going to see another ice age in the foreseeable future. So the modeling question, question is, is there modeling we might predict? If we just left the Milankovitch parameters alone, we would anticipate another ice age to be coming within the next few thousand years, next few thousand years. Now, right now, the, it's, it's almost impossible because the, the, the temperature of the Earth is going up and the heat is mostly in the oceans. So even if we stop putting carbon dioxide in the atmosphere today, the planet will continue to heat up for hundreds and hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years. So the, there isn't going to be another ice age in the near future. Yeah. Um, in terms of race, uh, like with more uh, specifically like Asian uh, dynasty and how like their facial features are. Do you have any explanation for why, I mean, it's gonna come off a little racy, but their eyes are different, and then like with, uh, in Africa, their facial features are more um, stout, so like they have uh, bigger noses, um, bigger lips, stuff like that. Do you know, in terms of the Asian question, why that is? is it so, so, yeah, the question is, is sort of racial features. 
And I have to stress that uh, my colleague, uh, John Gurchy, when he makes his reconstructions, he's working with uh, the bones. And so he's trying to reconstruct what the facial muscles might have looked like. And it's really, those are, are largely just hypothetical beings. So we look at our ancient ancestors as, as a hypothesis, and John would quickly say that. If we look at the modern peoples of the Earth, there's been a lot of different uh, research associated with the melanin content of the skin and the amount of solar radiation that different uh, populations uh, are subjected to. And I think that, you know, I look at, I've traveled around the world a lot, and wherever you go, people look a little bit different. But I, I hasten to say that though they might look a little bit different, when you get to know them and, and talk to them about what they're doing and why they're doing it and wh what their hopes are, they're the same. I mean, they have the same aspirations that we do around the globe from one side to the other. So the racial characteristics that we see, and they're of course very clear, are largely a function of the fact that, that population groups have been isolated for long periods of time in different parts of the world, whether it's in Asia or Africa or elsewhere. And as we continue to you know, intermarry, those differences are going to start to diminish. Hi, Bob. Um, when when uh, grappling with this uh, vision of what it's going to look like to transition away from fossil fuels, how do you um, how do you um, deal with the the uh, relationship between poverty and uh, cheap energy availability? Okay, yeah, so that's a good question, and I and I anticipated it a little bit. So I, I've never quite heard this phrase, but there's some kind of phrase, okay, boomers, which evidently we're being lambasted with by our, our younger uh, colleagues. There's a t-shirt now. Is there a t-shirt about yeah. that? So Lou, I think to answer your question, of course, it's not going to be easy. We're looking at a fundamental paradigm shift in how we use energy. And I've got a lot of friends and colleagues in the oil business. Uh, I've got a lot of people who, uh, firmly believe that the energy of the future is oil. And I've heard that again and again. And I actually don't agree. I think that uh, Sheikh Yamani, whom many of you will remember, the energy minister of Saudi Arabia in the 1970s, during the oil embargo 70s, Sheikh Yamani, he said that we didn't leave the Stone Age because we ran out of stones. So we're not going to leave the oil age because we ran out of oil. We're going to leave the oil in the ground. And that's not a happy thought for many of my friends. But just, just like we're leaving the coal in the ground, and my parents lived in Wyoming for 30 years, we will leave the coal in the ground. Those companies are bankrupt. The mines are closing right now in the Powder River Basin. And so oil and gas will follow coal. It's not going to be happy. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be inexpensive. But if you look to Germany, and Lou, I look at Germany as a, as a role model. You know, they're very proactive. They have the same facilities that we do. They have the same quality of life that we do. Uh, they have the similar challenges, an economy they're trying to keep going. 
continued struggle to get the East Germans integrated with West Germany, but they have a plan and a program to, uh, to decarbonize, and they will have electric vehicles. They're, they've got a program to make internal combustion engines no longer able to be registered. There's some year by which you won't be able to register an internal combustion engine. Those of you who have grandchildren, your grandchildren will not buy carbon cars. There won't be carbon cars for them to buy because the internal combustion engine is less efficient than the electric engine. So the electric engines are gonna be cheaper, more reliable, and why would anybody buy an old carbon car? So these paradigm shifts are challenging and we haven't really lived through them, but our grandparents, my grandparents certainly, lived through the horse transition. And the horse transition was very dramatic in the 1900, early 1900s, 1890s, 1900, early 1900s, people had horses and they worried about oats. Well, by 1908, the Model T Ford was invented and by the teens, people were transitioning away from horses and someday I'd like to see the horse to car ratio diagram but it didn't take very long for people to realize that it was cheaper and easier to turn a car on than it was to harness your horse and keep your horse fed, et cetera, et cetera. So we're gonna see the same kind of transition in our lifetimes. It's happening fast. It's happening fast. And it'll happen in China faster than here. It'll happen in islands, islands like New Zealand and, and Iceland faster than here. But we will follow the lead. So historically, species have evolved. I mean, fish grew legs, and as the, they got out of the water and moved on to land, what do you think is the possibility of species adapting to our changing planet as opposed to just dying off? Well, so the question is about species adapting to change, and, and of course the species, the species are very adaptable, and in the past, the, we look in the geological record, those of you who are geologists, we have to go back to 55.5 to find a time where something like this happened. 55.5 million years ago is the transition from the Paleocene to the Eocene. Species, uh, you know, adapted. They evolved rapidly in the early Eocene associated with a dramatic climate change. We still don't understand very well. It's the biggest question in our sciences is what happened at the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum. We don't understand that. But the geological record and the paleontological record are very clear that the animals and the plants survived. They changed. There was dynamic change. And I certainly anticipate the same thing happening right now. We're going to, evolution doesn't stop. Darwin would agree with me. Evolution continues. What Darwin didn't appreciate is the rate at which evolution can happen. Evolution happens much faster than he th thought or that he wrote about. I don't know quite what he thought, but evolution happens quickly, and I think things are evolving right now to, to, ch to the changes that are happening. Look at the lodgepole pine forests of Colorado. I'll give you one example. I'm not a forester. I don't know anything about lodgepole pine trees, but they've gone through a massive beetle infestation associated with the warming of the climate and the, you know, the beetles living at higher elevations and having two... Uh, Two, two cycles per year, bivoltine reproduction. 
So the lodgepole pine trees that are still living in Colorado have some kind of resistance to being chewed on by a mountain pine bark beetle. So right here in Colorado, we've got a biological experiment that probably will be ultimately manifest in an evolutionary change in the character of the lodgepole pine tree. And that'll rattle down through the whole system. Bob, I'm uh, 70 years old. I have a three-year-old granddaughter. When Natalie is my age, what's her everyday life going to be like? Well, you know, that's what Greta's asking. You introduce Natalie to Greta. When, when Natalie is 16 years old, if you can tell her or have her parents tell her about Greta, you know, Greta is a child in some of our definitions. But, but she's, you know, the second most famous woman on earth after Jane Goodall. So, but pretty amazing. So Greta's asking the same question. She says, what's going to be for us? And we have a hard time seeing into the future. But I teach young people, and I'm always very optimistic to young people, to a slightly older generation or group of uh, an audience. I might say that it's not completely clear to me that we can keep the wheels on the bus. You know, we've got 7.5 billion people on the planet. The 7.5 billion people on the planet all have something like this in their pocket, this thing which they call the black mirror. So they've got a black mirror in their pocket, and on the back side of the black mirror is the bitten apple. And that's a metaphor for the naked lady in the garden and the snake. And, and so this thing carries that knowledge that creates the unhappiness. So we've got 7.5 billion people. They are knowledgeable, and many of them are going to be unhappy. Right now, there's 60 plus million, as I mentioned, that are wandering, trying to find a home. They're drowning in the Mediterranean. They're dying of thirst in the Arizona desert, on and on. So your granddaughter is going to live in a world that's very different from our world. And I'm hoping that this sharing of information, exchanging of ideas, globalization of knowledge will give her a wonderful future. I can get here. Um, I, I'm not sure I understand my question, but I, I'm going to ask it because it's been striking me now for, for a while. Um, you read about the birds, the extinction of birds, or at least the, the threat of extinction for birds or animals. Um, you, you read about forests that are no longer uh, part of our environment. Uh, I feel like, and then you mentioned the, the internet, I feel like we're in a mode of what I would call accelerating geometric progression. So that if you don't have enough birds, you have many fewer, many fewer. And on the other hand, the knowledge is, is, is uh, spreading faster and faster. And I, I mean, I don't know what I'm asking really, except is that a possible way of, of, of thinking? And if so, it's very hard for us, at least in our generation, to understand that kind of change. Well, I think you're asking the passenger pigeon question. So I'll, I'll help you with your question a little bit. Uh, 
Passenger pigeons, remember they were very abundant and you will remember that they went extinct in year 1912, whatever it was, one click away, thanks to Wikipedia. <laughs> one click, you'd get that date. Well, you know, we all wondered why the passenger pigeon went extinct. You know, they'd lived in such great abundance, they'd been very successful. Of course, they were eaten vigorously by everybody that could eat them. They were shot out of trees, they died in vast numbers. But we didn't kill every last passenger pigeon. So to, to get to the answer to the question, I mean, there was, there was something about the character of the life of the passenger pigeon that was damaged by our activities. And, and humans did it. We just don't know quite how we did it. And whether we destroyed their society, whether we you know, damaged their cultural relationships, discouraged their reproduction, we don't really understand how we killed the passenger pigeon. That's not the only animal we don't understand how we killed. When we, when we first arrived in North America, the plains were covered in camels and horses and you know, all kinds of sloths and lots of megafauna. We, those went extinct as humans arrived in North America through mechanisms that, aren't poorly, that are not well understood. So extinctions are happening. Extinctions are accelerated by our activities. We're in what we call the sixth grade extinction. It's not a happy story if you're interested in biodiversity, but life is strong. I've lost where you've gone to, but life is strong. So life will continue in many different ways. And whether an individual animal or organism or ourselves survive, I don't have the answer to that. But I am confident, based on my geological understanding, that the Earth is going to be a wonderful place, full of life. Life will continue to evolve, will be marvelously diverse. Whether we're part of it or not, I don't know the answer to that. But rest assured that the biology will be strong and resilient. Things, so the question is, are things moving faster? We call it the great acceleration. I mean, there's a phrase for that. So type in great acceleration and you'll see there's 40 different parameters that are going up exponentially. Population's one, information transfer's another, number of you know light bulbs is another, on and on and on and on and on. So we live in a time of great acceleration. The challenge is right there. You know, can we capitalize on the increased sharing of information, increased technology transfer to make the world a better place. That is the challenge. And that's what the three-year-old grandchild needs to be working on. She will grow up in a world where they're struggling to figure out how to use these assets to take science and make the world a better place for everybody who's here. And we won't have all the animals. We're gonna lose the animals. We won't have all the birds. But there'll still be birds, and the birds will continue to evolve. Life will be good. Thank you, Dr. Reynolds, for your talk. I'm not as hopeful as you are. When I was a student, the, the senior nuclear physicists would say about nuclear waste, we left the problem of nuclear waste for your generation to solve. And my generation has not solved that problem. We haven't solved the problem of nuclear weapons. But I think that in the, I, well, I hope that Greta's 
generation is successful. But I think that in the sixth great extinction that humans are never going to be the dominant species again. And related to what you were just talking about, I wondered if you have any ideas about what might replace humans as the dominant species in a few million years. <laughs> so yeah, so the question is, you know, who, 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 comes, who comes next? Well, you know, I hope they have beer. <laughs> so I think that it, it's always a difficult question to, you know, to look into the future in that level of detail, but I think that, you know, there's an awful lot of people on the planet and you can anticipate all kinds of chaos up ahead, but to get rid of all of the people, that'd be a pretty drastic maneuver. You know, it, it could happen, but I suspect that uh, we're a very tenacious organism. We've populated all the known continents. We're living underground. We're living in space right now in the International Space Station. So I, I sort of think that we're likely to be around for a long time. If we do manage to do ourselves in completely, which would be, the, that's the right-hand side of the Drake equation. That's how long does civilizations last. If we do ourselves in completely, some other species, whether it's a whale or a dolphin, you know, or a horse, I mean, it, they will evolve higher intelligence, greater capacity. Tool users are common. When I was a kid, tool using defined mankind. Remember that? It was written in the books. Well, that's of course not true at all. There's all kinds of animals that use tools. Language, there's all kinds of animals that have language. So out of that tool using and language using cadre of animals, one of them will arise and life will be good. Bob, thank you. Um, you addressed the 70-year-old man's granddaughter's uh, that question. You addressed the question even further out than that. My question's in a little closer. You have access to a lot of college students. What are you telling freshmen these days? Uh, they're told they need to go to college. Um, they're taking out loans. What are you telling them about uh, the nearer term? And also, I read a headline, and I don't have any of the details, but uh, some folks in West Virginia have worked out uh, extraction techniques to get rare earth elements out of coal. And those rare earths are gonna be necessary for a very electric motor driven world. So I don't know if that coal ought to stay in the ground or not. It might be used for a very different purpose, but um, coal mining may need to progress as we go forward. But my main question is, that was a comment. My main question is, what are you telling freshmen these days? Yeah, so, so the question about uh, the curriculum for young people is very apropos here in, in Golden because the Colorado School of Mines, I'm an adjunct in the geophysics department and the curriculum in the geophysics department at the School of Mines is antiquated and they're my very dear friends but they're funded by the oil industry and they've got a curriculum that's been in place for 30 or 40 years and in principle it's teaching them to find oil and gas. So I have faced rooms full of usually juniors in college and they're squirming a little bit in their seats as they realize that the oil and gas industry might not be there by the time they graduate. And, and I don't discourage them. I, I say, well, you've got the skill sets because they're computer oriented, they're data driven, 
they're problem-solving kinds of students. They recognize the interconnectivity of different parameters and the capacity to, to look for interactions between different uh, activating forces. And so I tell them that they're going to be building better batteries, they're going to be looking for water resources, they're going to be cleaning up water, they're going to be making the world nicer in their own way once they achieve their degree and their college, Colorado School of Mines job uh, or, or uh, credential will get them strong opportunities to find jobs. But those jobs are going to be changing quickly, Tom. So I think that, I honestly don't think that most of the graduating students this year or next year are going to find jobs in the oil and gas industry. They're unemployed oil and gas geologists in this room. So, 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 you know, what's a kid supposed to do? So, so I tell them that I say, well, you know, look at the skill sets. You've got wonderful training. You know how to use computers. You know how to benefit from this kind of a system here. You're plugged into that kind of a system. You're part of the newosphere that Teilhard de Chardin talked about. So use those connectivities to find solutions. And they're going to be building things that we can't even imagine. And whether they get their rare earths out of coal, or they get their rare earths out of California, or they get their rare earths out of, out of China, I don't have the answer to that. But that's a wonderful question. You know, find a way to get, and it might not be they need something different than rare earths. They might need more lithium. Well, where is the lithium? Is it in Bolivia? You know, is it in the Atacama Desert? Find the lithium. And then, better yet, find something different than lithium that's more abundant or more available wonderful challenges. So I don't have explicit instructions to the students, but I tell them to stay the course. I tell them they're going to go to graduate school. You know, I don't know the details of what they're going to do, but don't bail out. We need you. actually a great note to end on and thank you so much for your talk I appreciate it and we have a golden beer talks t-shirt for you and I, and I want to thank all of you for coming month after month it's great to have such an engaged crowd and I hope we see you in December thank you